0: Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be beginning the third and final volume of the Library of America's collections of the writings of Herman Melville. It's a pretty bulky volume, I can see. It's, it's almost 1,500 pages, and I, I think it might be the longest single volume I've looked at in this series, and the longest of the three uh, by Melville, but not that not that much longer than the one that included Moby Dick. So this one actually has three novels, a bunch of short stories and prose, actually four novels if you include his posthumous Billy Budd. So we got Pierre, or The Ambiguities, Israel Potter, which is his novel, The American Revolution. We have The Confidence Man, which was his final novel published during his lifetime. And then we have Billy Budd, which was, of course, posthumously published. And then we have a bunch of his short stories and and uncollected prose. So a lot to get through. It's going to take us 13, 14, 15 episodes to get through all this. So we're going to get us started with with Pierre. Now, Pierre may be the hardest of these texts to deal with and to grapple with. And it's it's one I've struggled with earlier in, in my life when I first tried to read it. Um, when I first tried to read through the works of Herman Melville, I, I ran into Pierre and I was baffled. And I really understand where the commentators and the reviewers who first read this in 1952, why they were so taken aback by this book. It, it really confronts the sensibilities of the 19th century. That's not, of course, a problem today. Readers today can read this novel without feeling those same kind of sensitivities, I think, towards you know, some of the subtypes of incest and that, that runs throughout this novel. But it's just such a weird story, and it is almost feels very modernist when we when we read it today. So it's a it's a bit of a troublesome novel to, to go through. I don't know what I can do except really recommend that you you take a stab at it. I, I realize that's not going to be for everybody. It's yeah, it's a tough one, but it's, it's there's so much interesting things in so many interesting things in here that I think it's worth. Um, you know, diving right into, and and besides, we can't get to his other works until we get through Pierre, because that's first. Um, Yeah, looking forward, Israel Potter is something he really wrote. My understanding is he wrote it really as a back trap after the bad reception for Moby Dick and then even worse reception for Pierre. Um, He he wrote a more conventional kind of adventure tale with Israel Potter. I really like the Piazza tales, especially like Barnaby the, the Scrivener and some of the other stories he wrote. I love The Confidence Man. And Billy Budd so um, but Pierre's a bit of an, an oddball here and it's it's tough to get through um, now Melville had written six novels before he got to Pierre and they were all c-fiction you know some more fictionalized some more uh, kind of person some more based on his own, own life of course you have Marty and Moby Dick on the more fictional side of things and his other four c-fictions more drawn from his life um Pierre's drawn from his life, too, but it, it reflects maybe more on his, his, you know, kind of a nostalgia for the upstate New York um, rural areas. It, it deals a little bit with his struggles to become a writer. Um, and it, it's hard to deny that there's there's perhaps some kind of sexual anxieties that run throughout throughout Pierre. So I'll do my best with it i'll you know maybe i hope i have something to contribute to your understanding of of pierre if you've never read it before or if you're find yourself in a position where you have to read it i very much doubt anyone assigns this as a text but it may be something that that's someone reading for the first time may want to help with and I, i'll do what i i sort of can here um pierre was written in 1852 um, I first want to start out saying that he in a way pierre our main character here who's a young man he is he's 19. he's he's much younger than ahab but i'm, I'm struck that he has some parallels with with ahab for instance, especially the, this desire to seek something unreachable this kind of this delusional um, state he's in for much of the novel especially the first half i guess in the second half too he's, he's still in it but you really get the feeling you're not in a real world you're you're almost in the world of a madman or of someone who's so aloof from society and aloof from the real world that they they just have these kind of odd ways of looking at things and and especially the like it's set in 19th century america it's set in the time that melville lived um you know his great his grandfather was like the character's great grandfather was a revolutionary war hero killed in the Indian attack so it's not that removed from Melville's own life but they talk in all these these and nows and they they're kind of pretending to be this aristocracy almost and they're in this landed estate it it's almost like they took an English manor dropped it in America and then you have these people populating it and it just really is bizarre it, it doesn't seem to fit in the world of 19th century America and it's not even in the way it's written. It, it doesn't even see a be, seem to be an American novel, and certainly not even a Melville novel. It, it reads so differently than those more, uh, like the, the, the more crusty down-to-earth prose you get and all this sea fiction. Even Marty is still kind of down-to-earth, even in its fantasy. But this one, you have this highfalutin language, pages of descriptions of things using flowerly language and overblown dialogue and and the narrator in Pierre, is, is he breaks the third wall all the time. He he talks to you in a kind of chatty way sometimes, commenting on what he's narrating, and then sometimes saying, like, we don't know this, and then goes on to kind of have a universal omniscient perspective of things. It's, it's a, just a really bizarre tale, and it's almost modernist. That's what I want to say about it. my feeling on it. It, it seems to be... It should belong in the 20th century, you know, in the time of Oscar Wilde and Joyce and that. But it's not. It's, it's 1952 by, by Melville, a man whose career is like falling apart around him. Before too long, he's going to be working at the customs house full time. His writing career will be be over. I mean, the whole of his writing career is only eight, nine years anyways. And this is getting towards the end of it when, you know, failure after failure piled up. That said, it th- I think it's just it's bizarre enough that I almost have to recommend it, but I recommend it with some hesitation, just because it's so tough to get to get through. Um, it's written in books. It's not written really in chapters, but there's a lot of them, so they almost feel like chapters. It's it's about four hundred pages long, but it's divided up into twenty some books. Um, they start out pretty short, long, and then they get shorter and shorter as the novel goes on. For instance, the first 100 pages, the, the section we're going to look at today, only covers four sections. And you almost feel the writing getting less overblown and less dramatic and less overwritten as the novel moves into its kind of urban phase. The, the first half of the novel is set in the, in, like in the rural area. And then when they move to cities, it kind of picks up the pace. You actually feel the, the pace of the novel picking up in, in that second half as they move to the city. So um, that's a little bit about the structure of this of the tale. But we start out in a very ponderous place with the first four chapters. All right, let's try it. Um, so the first book is called Pierre, just emerging from his teens, and it is what it what it sounds like. It's about his background. He's 19 years old when we meet him. His name is Pierre Glendinning, um, kind of almost an aristocratic name. He's the son of a widow who's living on this estate in the countryside um, his father had died several years before when he was still quite young um, his grandfather is a, like a like i said a revolutionary war hero who died in some kind of indian attack and he has a fiance lucy right and he's just kind of living this life with his with his fiance visiting and with his mother and he's got kind of this very weird relationship with his mother, where he always calls her the sister. Um, and they have a very kind of casual way of talking. It doesn't seem like the normal formal relationship between a, fu- a mother and a son that we would expect from 19th century American literature. I don't know if this is kind of more of an aristocratic fashion. But nonetheless, it's it's sort of what we get here. Um, there's. We're, we're awash in the early part of the novel with kind of a noble fantasy about, about life and love, almost hearkening back to chivalry. And I, I don't know what to do except to, to quote some of this for you. And I, I might be doing that a lot in this episode just because, you know, I'll try to minimize it. But it, so much of this is just the experience of, of reading this language and trying to make sense of it. the romantic filial love of Pierre seemed fully returned by the triumphant maternal pride of the widow who in the clear-cut ligaments and noble air of the son saw her own graces strangely translated into the opposite sex there was a striking personal resemblance between them and as the mother seemed to have long stood in her beauty heedless of the passing years so Pierre seemed to have met her halfway and by a splendid precocity of form and feature almost advanced himself to the mature standpoint in time where his pedestaled mother so long stood, in the playfulness of the unclouded love, and with that strange license, which a perfect confidence and mutual understanding at all points had long bred between them, they were wont to call each other brother and sister, both in public and private. This was their usage. Nor when thrown among strangers was this mode of address ever suspected, for the sportful assumption, since the arm of, thinniness of Mrs. Glenning had fully sustained this youthful pretension. Thus freely and light, light, light some leaf, where mother and son flowed the pure, joint current life. But as yet the fair river had not borne its waves to the side, waves repelling rock, were thenceforth destined to be forever divided into two unmixing streams. So this is this is the description Melville gives of why they call themselves like brother and, and sister. And we realize that this is not... Of, an idle thing for Pierre because he, he demands the need for the sister. And he frames even this demand for a sister in, in kind of sh- feudal, chivalrous language. Oh, had my father had but a daughter, someone who I might love and protect and fight for if need be. It must be a glorious thing to engage in a mortal quarrel on a sister, sweet sister's behalf. Now of all things to heaven, I had a sister. And and he goes on here about the fact that he's a sole male, surrounded by these women, and he needs this sister to kind of be a fully developed person. And he does have a sister. It's revealed later in the novel that he has a half-sister, which he clings to in really bizarre ways. Um, But in the meantime, he he seems to be projecting this desire onto his youthful-looking mother. Now we're also given an image of the estate that he lives on, which is in the New World. It's in the Americas. And, and I say that, you know, specifically in the new world, right? The Americas are supposed to be this young frontier culture. Um, that's what we expect from American writers of the 19th century and into the 20th century. But no, what we have here is something um, nearly Gothic. And we just read Brockton Brown's works on the American Gothic, but that was more set in in the city and of course in the frontier novel Edgar Huntley he can't really do the conventional Gothic motifs but Melville here kind of pulls them out of, of the kind of the decaying estate or the decaying family line quote among those ruins is a crumbling uncompleted shaft and some leagues off ages ago left in the quarry, is a crumbling corresponding capital also incomplete these times seized and spoiled these time crushed into the egg and a left proud stone that should have stood among the clouds Time left a base beneath the soil. Oh, what clenchless feud is this that time hath with the sons of men? I mean, there again, we see the narrator kind of stepping in with some kind of uh, observed wisdom from this. Uh, There's a huge section in Book one too, where where Melville, or the narrator, I should say, goes on about er aristocracy in, in America, arguing that there is an aristocracy in the United States, and he goes on about its its characteristics in some detail. Nostalgia for Great Britain is, is part of it. We're told that every region of America has its own families that trace a quote, uninterrupted English lineage to the time before Charles the Blade. Um, also old and oriental, he says, oriental like English planter families of Virginia in the south, the Randolphs. He mentions you know the marriage of Pocahontas and Indian princess, and how that blood gets into this kind of American land-owning ruling class. Now, obviously, America does have an aristocracy of a sort, right? The the, the land-owning class, and even in New York, you had the, those huge manors that were owned by those those Dutch, right? Um, in, in along the Hudson Valley. But this is written in the post-revolutionary stage, of when America was supposed to wash away these aristocrats and you know melville may be commenting on the fact that these themes still survive he even talks about this directly to his readers saying but whatever one may think of the existence of such mighty lordships in the heart of a republic and however we may wonder at thus surviving like indian mounds the revolutionary flood yet surviving exist they do and are now owned by their present proprietors by a good nominal title as any peasant owns his father's old hat or any duke his great uncle's old cornet so they're kind of out of normal class lines in America, anyways. They're an anomaly in America, but they, they seem to be there. Part of this, of course, as I said, was nostalgia for Britain. There's this kind of urban-rule divide. Here's part of this. He He writes... For to the noble American youth is indeed, more than any other land, this indeed the most rare and choice lot. For it's to be observed that while in other countries the finest families boast of the country as their home, the more prominent among us proudly cite the city as their seat. Too often the American that makes himself a fortune builds him the great metropolitan house in the most metropolitan street of the most metropolitan town. Quote. But that's not what Pierre does. Pierre's living on a, a landed estate, and he only comes to the city later in the novel. So as I already said, he talk, talks to his mother. He calls his mother sister, specifically Sister Mary. Her name is Mary Glendinging. And we get a description of her as, as youthful and a bit vain, but kind of honest and, and upright. She's about 50 years old, but she's presented commonly as, as young. In fact, so young that when, when to strangers, he introduces her as a sister, no one bats an eye, it seems. We also though get hits of incest in their conversations, and they have the most bizarre conversations. I have to say, uh, I mean, they're just so weird. They're like almost, almost like out of a dream or something. He starts talking to her about Shakespeare and Romeo. He says, Romeo, oh no, I'm far from being Romeo. I laugh, but he cried, Poor Romeo, last Romeo, woe is me, Romeo. He came to the very deploral end, did Romeo, sister Mary. And she says, why it's his fault, and he keeps replying, poor Romeo, poor Romeo. And then her final response to him is, but you, Pierre, are gonna be married before long. I trust not to a Capulet, but to one of our own Montagues. And so Romeo's evil fortunes will hardly be yours. You'll be happy. And I don't think it's quite a direct hint to incest. She's just saying, don't follow the path of Romeo, like right? marry a Capulet and end up dead, right? Marry, marry someone in your own house. but." He is going to marry his half-sister. He's going to marry a Montague, to, to follow the, the metaphor that's pre- presented here. So, yeah, I mean, as soon as you read the first chapter, you know we're not in in the Melville we are, are, are used to. And we know we're, we're actually not in a place where we're used to being for other 19th century American novels. It, it's really a bizarre place we, we find ourselves in, filled with weird relationships and and. Strange conversation, and it all seems out of place and out of time. And I can imagine readers in in 1952 not quite knowing what to do with this this particular text. But we're going to move on. We're going to move on to book two. Book two is called Love, Delight, and Alarm. And this is mostly about his fiancée, Pierce's fiancée, Lucy Tartan. Now, what we're taught in chapter two... By the narrator. Again, that's called Love, Delight, and Alarm. And we're going to experience all of those. Um, love, his love for Lucy Tartan, their love for each other, their delight of living together, and then their alarm comes from something that disrupts their their relationship. Um, we're basically it's basically explained to us that these two people were fated to be together. They're family friends, they're ideal mates. They were actually brought together by by a matchmaker. But we're gonna get the same kind of overblown, exaggerated language here when we're, we're told about her her beauty. Quote, her cheeks were tinted with the most delicate white and red from white predominating. Her eyes some god brought down from heaven. Her hair was Diane, sprangled with Jove's shower. Her teeth were d- divided for in the Persian sea, died for in the Persian sea. and So that's the comparing her to the divine, to the gods, to Greek gods later on we get say what you will their jealousy if any is but an afterbirth to the open admiration do men envy the gods and shall women envy the goddesses a woman a beautiful woman is born queen of men and women both as mary Stuart was born queen of scots whether men or women all mankind are her scots her legal clans are numbered by the nations a true gentleman in kentucky would cheerfully die for a beautiful woman in hindustan though he never saw her Ye count down her heart to death drops for her and go to pluto that she may go to paradise he would turn turk before he would disavow an alleged hereditary to all gentlemen from the hour of the Grand Master adam knelt before first knelt the eve right then you know we get also comparisons to you know french queens and and others so this is this is our description of lucy tartan and we get it for like three pages where she's just compared to all these historical and biblical biblical references. Now the matchmaker who tied together Lucy and and Pierre is this Aunt Lanolin. She's she's the matchmaker and she's another one of these women on this estate. Remember this estate is surrounded by women. Uh, there's like male servants and workers and things, but basically it's Pierre surrounded by by these widows and and his fiancee. He's kind of presented here as almost bait for Lucy, again, suggesting that they're fated to be together. Fate runs throughout this whole story, right? We already were introduced to uh, Romeo and Juliet, of course, fated in a way. Um, his own fault, of course, but fated through his own fault. But we're going to have Dante mentioned a lot. Again, kind of a, the heavy overtones of fate and, and a lot of other... Classical allusions to, to literature that, that hint to fate. And Pierre constantly thinks he's out of whatever he does is out of his hands. He's basically being pulled by various um, strings, whether, whether it's his past or, or some other forces. Um, we learn in this chapter a little bit about Pierre's grandfather, that he was a military hero, and the grandness of his his exploits and his and his his fame his local fame and then the same overblown language when they start to talk about the love and the delight part of the of the of the chapter quote no cornwall miner ever sunk so deep a shaft beneath the sea as love will sink beneath the floating of the eyes love sees 10 million fathoms down till days on the floor of pearls the eye is love's own magical glass where all things that are not of earth glide in supernatural light there are not so many fishes in the sea as there are sweet images of the lovers eyes in these miraculous translucencies swim in the strange eye-fish with wings that sometimes leap out instincts with joy, moist fish wings with, wet with the lover's cheek. And, and I'll stop there, but it goes on. I mean, the next paragraph, endless is the account of love. Time and space cannot contain love's story. A paragraph for that, all this earth is love's a, a fiancée, a-financed. A what the word? Yeah, a financed. Vainly the demon principal howls to stay the bands. Why round her middle dress this world so rich a zone of torted verdure? Next paragraph. Love is the world's great redeemer and reformer. And it goes on like this for page after page of this overblown language about, about love. That seems it's... Maybe it's a European novel. I don't read European novels. I'm, I'm obviously a, a bit of a, a cultural nationalist in this way. I, I read the American writers. But maybe this is how Europeans wrote. In, in this era and, and Melville's sort of poking fun of it but he certainly if he's trying to emulate it I don't know if he's doing a good job or not it just seems so preposterous to me um, and I think that's partially the point now what happens in this chapter the section the alarm section is he, he sees this mysterious girl he sees a mysterious girl and he connects her he, he at some points thinks he's, she's a ghost it makes her think of Dante, and and whenever he sees this girl, he th- he sees her twice in this part of the story, and he in both times he thinks of Dante afterwards. And this this girl this girl is, is going to prove later on to be Isabella, who is the the half sister of of Pierre. It doesn't take long for for this to all be revealed to us, but again, this like this whole chapter is is again just bizarre, and the narrator is complicit in it all. It's it's not. Uh, Pierre's thinking this. I mean, it's one thing if it's Pierre just commenting on or thinking about love in this way. He's a young man, right? We expect young people to have delusional ideas about love. They, they still do, I think. You know, it's, it's just the way young people are, right? Their emotions are stronger. Their image about love and life tend to be more coming from popular culture. And that does lead to that kind of over overwrought emotions and expressions of emotions but the narrator here is completely complicit in it, uh, like taking the reins from Pierre for, for pages at a time, kind of carrying on with it as, I don't know, a tongue-in-cheek observer who's, who's poking fun at Pierre's own mind or, or on board with this. I, I think there's a lot to be said about the narrator, and if I was a, a literary scholar of any sort, maybe I'd have something more meaningful to say about it. But, you know, let me know what you think. About any of this, so that that's book two. Book three is called the Presentment and Verification, and and so he goes to the to the to I think it's like Lanolin's cottage, and he sees these women sewing there, and he hears a voice. Pierre hears a voice. He's with his mother when he does this. He hears a girl shout out a voice, a woman shout out his voice, and. And later, he actually sees that face again, right? And this face has a massive impact on him. And again, it's kind of somewhat, he thinks he's being faded and drawn into something. Sometimes he thinks it's like a ghost. Uh, there's a lot of image of, of ghosts in here, of haunting. And I know the, the meaning of haunting is not always just literally ghosts, but obviously we associate it with it. And he uses the word ghost. Um, ghostly mysticalness at one point is mentioned. Uh, too really true in itself, this is Melville writing, too really true in itself, however, evasive in its effect at the time was the earnest answer to his mother declaring that he had never in his whole existence been so profoundly stirred. The face haunted him as some imploring and beautitious, impassioned ideal Madonna haunts the morbidly longing and enthusiastic but ever baffled artist. And ever as the mystical face thus rose before his fancy sight, another sense was touched upon him. The long-drawn, unearthly girlish shriek peeled through him and through his soul. For now he knew the shriek came from a face. Such Delphic shriek could only come from such a source. And wherefore that shriek, thought Pierre, boded ill for me to face it, or me, or both. So, wow. Um, Again, the the language is, is tough to deal with. Now, you don't have to deal with this for the whole book. I mean, it it becomes downright like straightforward and modern by the end. Um, but we're in a 20th century novel by the end, it seems. Um, so this familiarity he seems to have with this face is what's most disturbing for for Pierre. So for a number of pages, I think Pierre and he drags the narrator along with them, go insane, um, and he goes searching for her. And he's only able to return to rationality after two days of, of time. And he's still like going on about Dante um, when he kind of gets back to normal and gets back to his senses. But he's, he's pretty much insane. And, and to some degree, I think intense love or, or longing can be a type of insanity. But it takes some, quite a few pages for him to get back to just some semblance of, of rationality it gets talked up to Pierre's youthful impatience and his melancholy and youth's temperament and all that and, and maybe there's something to that. I I do think youth tend to tend to feel these emotions in different ways and there's probably physiological reasons for that, of course, but it's you know, it's it's something we notice and we it's something we experience of course as young people. So Lucy, the the mother, no sorry, Mary, sorry, Mary the mother of oh god her name's mary um yeah mary glending kind of notices pierre going off the deep end and he, he she seems to think it has something to do with the girl so he talks to her talks to him about speeding up the marriage and she talks but the same way they, the way these two people talk to each other it's it's bizarre they they don't talk like um mother and son. They, they talk in kind of evasive ways. They talk through classical illusions. They're very jokey with each other. And and they kind of evade each other a little bit. I don't know. It'd be interesting to, to see kind of acted out, I guess. Um, so she sort of wants to speed up the marriage between Lucy and and Pierre to get him kind of shackled in. But before that can happen... I mean, there's a few intervening events, but they're not that important. But before this happens, he gets the letter from, from Isabella. And Isabella, who noticed him at that gathering, sends him a letter. And it's, it's a fairly long letter, but essentially she declares herself as her, his sister by his father. And, and she says she wants to meet, right? She gives her name and, and how to contact her. But it's a very sweet letter. Where she introduces herself to to her brother, and of course, this totally disrupts Pierre's um, understanding of himself and and his place in the world and his duty. And it most importantly, it disrupts his perspective of his of his father. And that's kind of what first enters his head almost is what this means about his father that his father had before he was even born in an affair with someone and had fathered a child which he didn't care for right so all the images of his father and his lineage gets disrupted in this way it is kind of like a gothic novel how someone kind of at the tail end of a noble family will learn some deep secret from um previous age or even like a lovecraftian kind of story which would lovecraft would do this a lot too um but it's it, like, it shatters him. This is the way Melville describes it. I, Pierre, now indeed art thou hurt with a wound, never to be completely healed, but in heaven. For thee, the before undisturbed moral beauty of the world is forever fled. For thee, thy sacred father is no more a saint. All brightness hath gone from thy hills and all peace from thy plains. And now, now for the first time, Pierre, truth rolls a black billow through thy soul. End quote. And again, think of the, what the narrator's doing here. The narrator is, like, stops talking to us and talks to Pierre, you know, it's again. It, it seems very modernist. I don't know if other people were doing this in the 19th century. I haven't come across this type of narration before. And I, you know, maybe Melville's not the first to do it, but I just think it's very striking how you know he he actually redirects who he's, who he's talking to 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 point out, you know, Pierre as you know his his object of of narration, and you know, telling him, you know this horrible reality that his his worldview has changed. So that's book three. Book four is called Retrospective. And so this is really about the aftermath of of this realization. And mostly it's about his father, his memories of his father, and one very important memory which comes back to him, which is when his father was dying, he yelled out, my daughter, my daughter. And young Pierre didn't really know what it meant, but he he kind of stored this memory in his subconscious, and now it comes forth again. So he thinks quite a lot about his father, and he's going to do this even into book five, and it's never really going to fully go away, his anxieties over the realization of his father's past. Um, So he goes and starts to dig around a little bit about his father's past, and he talks to Aunt Dorothea, another member in in the household. And... Or is he, maybe he remembers the story for, uh, from Aunt Dorothea. Yeah, that might be it. But I think she told him some story about his father having an interest in a foreign woman that wouldn't have been like a good match in an aristocratic sense, right? With As as Pierre's mother would be. And, you know, someone else mentioned that he was in love with like a French lady. So there's a couple stories out there that he pieced together, along with his own memory of his deathbed essentially confession of a of a, his deathbed confession of a of a daughter is that there seems to have been another woman at some point in his past. And and this memory of a French lady, you know, it, it comes back to him now. And so the heart of this chapter, which I think it's the shortest of these first four, but you know, they're all they're all fairly long. But the heart of it is this changing view of who his father is. Well, so that does it. That's the first four books of of Pierre. So we're already a quarter of the way through, and I also want to say, you know, thank God, because this is a this is a tough one, um, but very very interesting, obviously. And I don't know. I, I think this book can turn off a lot of a lot of readers, but it's just so kind of weird. Um, if you like literature, if you like even kind of modernist writing, you know, check it out. It, it's kind of one of those books that that I think not many people read anymore. I don't know how many people actually pick this up anymore. You know, when you search Melville, it's always Moby Dick, right? It's it's not many people even read like things like Marty anymore or Omu. You know, Taipei, I guess, still gets picked up from time to time. But, you know, this one, I think, definitely gets just gets tossed aside. But, you know, here we have a chance to, to dig into it. So... Try it. See if you like it. And let me know what you think if, if you read through the first half. What I'll, what I'll do next time is I'll, I'll, I'll get to the halfway point in the novel by looking at books 5 through... I believe it's 5 through 9. Maybe it's 5 through 10. Actually, I can just look it up. Yeah, it'll be 5 through 9. So... Um, and that, that gets us to about the halfway point in, in the story. And we'll see what he does with this knowledge of Isabel and his father um, next time we meet. Um, so as always, thanks for listening and, and sharing my experience digging into Pierre. Um, if you're reading along, check out chapters 5 through 9 of Pierre. And let me know what you think below. Um, leave your comments or send me an email at 100 gmail.com. Yeah, that does it. See you next time. Nice talking with you.